0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. This week, the speaker is me, and my name is Brett, and I'm the Worship and Arts Pastor at Southview. And I'll be wrapping up our series titled Rooted. Lent begins this Wednesday on February 14th. We're going to have two Ash Wednesday services, 5.30 and 7 p.m., Also, if you visit our website, you'll find our Lent page where there's all sorts of information and resources, and as a church, we're going to be reading through the Gospel of Mark, and you can find that reading plan there. We have an update from our search team as well. They've been conducting second interviews the last three weeks, and they are asking for each of us to continue to pray for God to grant wisdom and discernment as they consider and pray about who God may be calling to be our next senior pastor. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group, Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Let's seek the face of God together.
1: The sermon text is John 12:1 through 8 and 23 through 26 from the NIV. Jesus anointed at Bethany. 6 days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in his honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this, wasn't this? was this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she, would, she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have. My father will honor the one who serves me.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome, and welcome to, I don't see the red light, but online people. Uh, My parents, for sure. Uh, My name is Brett. I'm the Worship and Arts Pastor here at Southview, if we haven't met before. And just two things before we start. One, and I know I said this last time, but our drummer... Uh, he he's a year older than my son, who's on the camera at the back. And I remember when he was born, and then our kids were running around. If you remember Evergreen, back in the day, there were these kids that would run around on Saturday night creating chaos. That was Oliver and James... Uh, And then later on, Libby and Benjamin and Amy. Uh, But it is so cool to see somebody his age. I think he turns 15 in September. And for me, I remember I wouldn't be where I am now if not for when I was 12 years old, I was asked to play piano on a worship team at Bethel Pentecostal Church in Mission, B.C. And that kind of changed the course of my life in a lot of ways. Not that I'm making James have to consider ministry or anything like that. But it's an exciting thing. And then, by the same token, another exciting thing. So, Sydney, who is in the tank, who's our senior high youth coordinator, she works with uh, grade school. I don't know if we announced it, but just on the 30th, she passed her interview to be licensed in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is huge. <laughs> Uh, I was giving her a hard time because I'm on the ordination council, and so sometimes I get to sit on those interviews, and I was really hoping to sit in on hers, but that doesn't make any sense. Why would I sit there and, you know, the whole thing? But she did a phenomenal job, and we are super proud of her, and that is a stressful thing. You get to sit there and get grilled by people. In her case, I think, Rick, at least one of them were DSs because I think Mark was on it. Like, these are... These are some home-run-hitting Mark McGuire, Barry Sanders uh, Alliance people that are kind, but they're not supposed to be kind there. I'm joking. We are kind (laughs) in those interviews. However, she did a great job. And so today... I'll jump back on. Today, we're going to wrap up the series that we've been in since the end of December, just after Christmas, and it's been titled Rooted. It still is even today. So for the last six weeks, we've been seeking to discover how to get more rooted in Christ. How can we experience more growth? How can we experience and discover more power for this life with Jesus? And simply put, the key is to become rooted in him. And so we've looked at the last six weeks where we seek to abide in Jesus. Because as we do, we will bear much fruit. We recognize our identity, each of us, as people of the resurrection. And this shapes who we are in Jesus right now, as well as looking to our future hope. We spent two weeks talking about being rooted in love because a life rooted in Jesus is a life rooted in love. A life rooted in love learns to sit and tend to the deeper life that gives way to the same love that is now overflowing in us. And by being rooted in love, we're actually transitioning from our old life to our new life in Christ. And by the same token, as Craig said, we are to put on love. We embrace our identity as chosen, holy, beloved children of God. And so, therefore, we dress ourselves accordingly. And we have already been set apart. And by God's sanctifying work, we are drawn into an ever-deepening communion with the Father, by the Son, and then through the Holy Spirit but we can't receive what god has for us when we stand before him with clenched fists being yielded or surrendered to him is the fundamental posture of a christ follower but it's not a posture that it's not a posture that we can just fall into by accident but rather it is a choice we choose to open every door of our lives to let him in. And then finally, we don't do this by our own strength. We don't do this on our own. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in our lives as we surrender daily to Christ's Lordship. And last week even, Devin encouraged us to pray, God, show me by your Spirit what I haven't yet given to you. And then two weeks ago, after breaking all the laws to drive here to preach, I was away, but I was getting texts. I was laying in my bed in London, England with my band. And I was like, Mark's flight is late. It's going to be fine. Mark's flight is two hours late. I'm sure it'll be fine. Mark's flight is three hours late. Let's see what happens. Maybe it'll be a testimony night. But Mark came and a couple of weeks ago he said, this is a truth. God delights in you. And it's very much like a parent with outstretched arms encouraging a child that is learning to walk. And if that child stumbles and falls, he is still delighted. And I know I talked a lot about running last month. But one of the things that I took away from like an ultra marathon for my friends, not that I did it, but from my friends, one of the most important things you can do is maintain forward progress or forward movement. And so that will not always mean you're running. Sometimes you're just walking. Sometimes you're falling. And you're getting back up and you're moving forward. And so this journey that we're on We are in it together, and we are seeking to learn from each other, from God's word, as we go. And so as was read already, thank you, Rhonda, our passage today is from John 12. And in chapter 11, the chapter immediately previous, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And on top of that, the movement against Jesus by the Pharisees has reached a boiling point where Caiaphas has essentially prophesied that Jesus be put to death because they see him as a major threat to the stability of Jerusalem. And so for us on this side of history, we know where this is headed. We can see in between, even on the page in front of us, in between our two passages, that Jesus is about to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that will enact his journey to the cross. And in Christian scholarship... The book of John's commonly broke into three sections. Table. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Hymn to the Word, which is the first 18 verses of the book. And then we have the book of signs, which starts in 119 and goes through the end of our chapter today in chapter 12. And then we have the book of glory, which is chapter 13 through the end of the gospel. So our text today is actually the final chapter in the book of signs. And it contains three events in the days just prior to the Passover. First, Mary is anointing Jesus in Bethany. Then we have Jesus entering Jerusalem. And then thirdly, the Greeks, or we can call them Gentiles, that are attending Passover. They visit Jesus. They come to Jesus with questions. And so right away in our text today, in verse 1, we're told Jesus returns to Bethany. To the home of Lazarus. And then in the next verse, it tells us that Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus at the dinner. Now, this is not by accident. Lazarus, the one who Jesus called from the grave, is sitting alongside Jesus, who later on in verse 7 tells us is designated for burial. And for us today, designated for resurrection. So already this text is telling us that more is going on than just a simple dinner. And the text goes on to describe Mary bringing costly perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. And this perfume is worth 300 denarii, which for our reference, for those of us who don't deal in denarii, uh, that's about one year's wages for a laborer so even if you take it further think of your annual income and then dump that out that is what we're talking about here and spices and ointments they're quite costly they had to be imported and it wasn't uncommon for these spices and ointments to be used as an investment because they were small they were portable they were easily traded or sold on the free market and so this quite possibly could have represented Mary's entire life savings. And it stands to reason that this was something of a monumental sacrifice for Mary. And yet for her, washing Jesus' feet was simply uninhibited worship and submission to him. And Jesus later on in verse 7, he affirms that she has kept it for this day of his burial— So again, this is not just a dinner recorded by the evangelist, but rather Jesus is showing us that his hour is coming. And the timing of this anointing is important as well, because John wants the reader to see that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem in the following verses as a king. But as a king who has been anointed for burial, as one who is destined for exaltation through and after suffering of death and so of all people Judas is upset by it and how he veils his reasoning behind something like giving to the poor and to be fair to Judas just this once as i've already mentioned this gift is astounding It could be that the others around the table were feeling similarly. But because it was Judas who complained aloud, the legitimacy of his complaint is actually tarnished or ruined by his reputation. Because John, who's writing with the benefit of hindsight, he reminds us it's Judas that will betray Jesus. And the text tells us Judas handled the finances of the group and at the same time was taking from those finances for his own personal gain. But John can't tell any story about Judas without his treacherous deed of betraying Jesus, overshadowing his image. So let's jump to our next portion of the text for today, and it's verses 23 through 26, and I'm going to reread it here. In verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And so first, it should be noted that something has changed. So earlier in verse 20, the Greeks or the Gentiles, in a way, are signaling the closing of a chapter for Jesus. His ministry in Judaism is finished. He now belongs to the wider world. Even non-Jews are intrigued and show interest in him. And it's at this point, the point that the Gentiles, these are Gentiles that were there to worship at Passover. They trigger something in verse 23 that's important to make note of. It's something actually, whether we know it or not, we've been waiting for throughout the gospel of John to this point. Up until now, the phrase has always been Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, he says in chapter 7, verse 6. Or John, narrating in chapter 7, verse 30, says, then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. In our text here in the middle of chapter 12, Jesus is himself finally announcing that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's from this point that Jesus begins his return to the Father, which is accomplished as he's lifted up on the cross. And we see Jesus then voluntarily, deliberately, giving himself over to them in chapter 18. The text says he comes forward and asks the contingency with Judas, whom are you looking for? And responds, it's me. I am here. And after proclaiming that the hour has come, Jesus tells a short parable, and there's no explanation, but in light of what he's already said in this chapter alone, its meaning is clear. Just as a seed must die in order to give life, Jesus must die in order to give life to the world. And further, in verse 25, Jesus tells the disciples and to us today that the same law applies to them to relinquish one's hold on life to give it up is the key to participation in the kingdom and we see the same thing in the synoptic gospels which if you're not aware that's Matthew Mark and Luke so Matthew 10:38 and 39 says whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake We'll find it. And then the gospel of Mark, again, uses the language of the cross, saying the same thing in Mark 8. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. So this is critically, this is a critical point for Jesus and for our gospel writers. But John adds one thing in verse 26, and this is a gift and a promise for those who are following Christ. It's the same thing as Matthew and Mark and Luke, but he adds, where I am, there will my servant be also. So this is a promise of Jesus that points yes to a unity of purpose between him and his servants but it also points to a guarantee that such servants will be with Jesus theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and this is far beyond, beyond when what he knew the end would be for him he described it this way when Christ calls a man he bids him Come and die. So that's quite an invitation. And it is, in fact, the cost of following Jesus. But but what does it mean? Fleming Rutledge says that taking up the cross, as Jesus himself called us to do, means a total reorientation of the self toward the way of Christ. And what Rutledge is describing there is a word that maybe we're familiar with. It's a word, repentance. It's a turning from one thing to another, a transformative change of both mind and heart. Because true repentance is more than simply believing in Jesus or accepting the offer of grace. It means that there is real alteration of the inner person. In the imitation of Christ, Thomas Kempis says, Leave yourself, give up self, and you shall enjoy a deep inward peace. Give all to gain all. Ask for nothing, take nothing back. Abide in me with simplicity of heart and unwavering resolution, and you shall possess me. You shall be free of heart, and darkness shall not overshadow you. Work for this, pray for this, long for this. So it's a complete reorientation of the self. Again, it's repentance from where we're currently headed to Christ himself. Our allegiance has shifted from our own world and culture to the king. And this king, Jesus, has gone before us and he's fighting for us. He has already shown the way regardless and including the troubles that life brings. Because like our text says today, where he is, we, his servants, are there also. In his message a couple, years, uh, a couple weeks ago, Mark Peters did speak about yieldedness. And it reminded us, he reminded us that it's not something we just fall into. It's a conscious choice. And Bonhoeffer writes this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, surprisingly enough, when Jesus begins to unfold this inescapable truth to his disciples, he once more sets them free to choose or reject him. If any man would come after me, he says, for it is not a matter of course, not even among the disciples. Nobody can be forced Nobody can even be expected to come. He says, rather, if any man is prepared to spurn all other offers which come his way in order to follow him. Once again, everything is left for the individual to decide. And so, if we're making that conscious choice to submit our lives to Christ, then what does that mean for us? Does it mean that we will experience freedom from the hardships and troubles of this world? No, but unfortunately, that has been and continues to be taught as the modus operandi for churches in North America, for some of them. There is no doubt that following Christ can and will bring blessing. But time and time again, Scripture seems to point to what seems to be the exact opposite. Scripture seems to point, many times, to persecution, to suffering, and to death. In fact, a little later in the Gospel of John, in John 15, John fifteen nineteen, Jesus says, If you belonged to the world... The world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that said that I said to you remember the word that I said to you servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Paul in his second letter to Timothy writes indeed all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And 1 Peter 2:21 says for to you this for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. And it's not to say that good won't come out of turning to a life with Jesus. There are, hear me, there are blessings upon blessings that come with following Christ. However, we should be aware of the entire picture. Because are there gifts from him? Yes. Do we get to walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, not walking alone? Yes. Can we care for others, the poor, the marginalized? Absolutely. Are we blessed when we give our time and our money to the church? Yes. Does it automatically double our money? Okay, that's not up to us, but I can say we're not gambling. (laughs) We are giving. There are immensely positive and life-giving milestones In our walk with Jesus. And truly there is no other way. However, we shouldn't be surprised if or when. It also brings suffering or hardship. In his book, After You Believe, N.T. Wright says the following. Jesus didn't say, as do some modern evangelists, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Nor did he say, I accept you as you are, so you can now happily do whatever comes naturally. He said, if you want to become my followers, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He spoke of losing one's life in order to gain it, as opposed to clinging to it and so losing it. He spoke of this in direct relation to himself and his own forthcoming humiliation and death, followed by resurrection and exaltation. Exactly in line with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, he was describing and inviting his followers to enter an upside-down world, an inside-out world, a world where all the things people normally assume about human flourishing— including human virtue are set aside and a new order is established. And so here, what he's talking about, this is something that we've talked about relatively often, particularly this year at Southview, our allegiance to Christ, Christ who was obedient to the cross means that we are citizens of a different kingdom This kingdom seems upside down. It seems backward to the world that we live in. And Bonhoeffer says we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. But the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Thomas Merton uh, was a Trappist monk and author, and he wrote this, I am called here to grow. Death is a critical point of growth. Our transition to a new mode of being, to a maturity and fruitfulness that I do not know, they are in Christ and in his kingdom. The child in the womb does not know what will come after birth. He must be born in order to live. I am here to learn to face death as my birth. Here, planted as a seed in the cosmos, I will be a Christ seed and bring fruit. Death and rising in Christ, this ordains me to be the person I am, to be myself in the sense of choosing to tend toward what God wants me to be, to orient my whole life To being the person he loves. And so as a monk, Thomas Merton lived in isolation or relative isolation. But even though that's very different than what we experience, the same is true for us. Our new mode of being, giving ourselves over to Christ in his kingdom, means a death of self that leads to maturity and fruitfulness that only comes from him. He already delights in us. And we don't do this alone, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. This sanctifying work by the Spirit is what true flourishing means as a disciple of Christ. Even while in the face of suffering and hardship, Christ is with us And we will bear fruit that brings glory to God. And as a reminder from earlier, we're talking about forward progress, forward movement. We will stumble. We will feel tired. We will be weak. But God delights in us and Christ is with us. And so we choose to submit to him and keep moving forward knowing that the fruit will come. And this is the crux of being rooted in Christ. Life will have its ups and downs. We will have mountaintop and valley moments. We will feel stuck. We will feel plateaued. And I used this quote last month, but it's too good. I wanted to use it twice. The hardest thing about the Christian life is that it is so daily. So there is a cost to following Jesus, denying self, surrendering to him. Doing that daily is how he will bring about fruit in our lives. And it requires a conscious choice and a sacrifice. But it is truly the best way forward. Seeking to abide in him, embracing our identity Seeking out, putting on his love by the power of the Spirit, surrendering to his will. And it it seems abrupt, but at the same time, I say it each time coming to the Lord's table is part of this journey. It isn't just reminding ourselves of Christ's work on the cross, it's also receiving from him in this meal. So when we read that Christ is indeed with us, that pertains to this table. His presence is here in these elements. And so as we receive from Christ in the meal, perhaps it does give us everything we need to move into this day or this week as we journey more closely with him. And so we do remember That Christ's body was broken for you. And likewise with the cup, Christ's blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And before we receive these elements, we're going to take a time of confession, and we're going to do so both personally and corporately. I want to take a tangible moment of what we talked about, of, rep- of repentance. Again, we're recalibrating our minds and going, how can I focus and turn toward Christ? And so I'm going to give a minute or so to pray silently, or a little bit of time. And then I'll bring us back, and we're going to join together with a confession prayer on the screen, a responsive prayer. So let's take that time now. Let's read this confession prayer, this responsive prayer on the screen. Compassionate God, we pray for your mercy for all those times when we swim against the current of your heart. When we turn away from the anguish of your beloved creation, give us your grace. When we let the big picture overshadow the near, the small, and local. When we sacrifice the well-being of the whole when our righteousness creates barriers rather than openings, give us your grace. When our structures, practices, and traditions blind us to you, when our despair or fear of exhaustion, anger, or willfulness deafen us to your voice, give us your grace. When the lures of security personal gain, and comfort distract us from your oath. When guilt, a sense of inadequacy, bitterness, or resentment separates us from you, give us your grace. Give us your grace to turn and return again and again to you to say yes to the new possibilities you offer each day to come home to you. Give us your grace. have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And I want you to hear these words of absolution, these words of forgiveness. It's a truth that we're told from First John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's take our elements, and if you haven't already, remove the first layer revealing the bread. And I'm going to read from Matthew 26, again, starting from verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Receive from him. And then continuing on in verse twenty seven. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the father's kingdom. Receive from him. Amen. Will you stand for the benediction? And as you do, I'll remind you, uh, as Andrew pointed out, Lent does start this Wednesday. We have two Ash Wednesday services here in this room, sitting in the round. One's at 5.30, one's at 7. And then also, it's posted online. We have a Lent page with all sorts of information and resources there through our website, One of the things you can get there, I hope you will, is a reading plan as we look to read the gospel of Mark together as a church family. And so all the days are lined up for the days through Lent and Psalms on Sundays because Sundays are feast days. They are Sundays in Lent. They're not a part of Lent, but hope you'll do that. And then also we have our social right now. We're about to experience the different foods that we love. No judgment if you don't like what other people like. But I'm excited, that's the theme, food that we love. And so grab some food, and can I ask you, could you turn as you're out there and maybe introduce yourself to somebody you've never met before, even just one. We do want to provide space and time to connect as a church body and really connect. And our benediction today is actually from Thomas Akempis, from The Imitation of Christ. I read it earlier, so hear these words. Leave yourself, give up self, and you shall enjoy deep inward peace. Give all to gain all. Ask for nothing, take nothing back. Abide in me with simplicity of heart and unwavering resolution. And you shall possess me. You shall be free of heart and darkness shall not overcome you. Work for this pray for this, long for this. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace.